0: Hello, Bonas! I am so excited to be unlocking this lit review that I put up for the patrons in March of 2020, which is pretty crazy to think about because that was, I think, maybe even pre-pandemic or was right around that time where the news media exploded and a lot of places started shutting down in the U.S., so, but the stuff that we talked about, that I talked about with Jasmine Magania, who's a Salvi Femme PhD student at Duke University, are is still so, so timely, and I was reflecting on this conversation and thought I need to bring Jasmine back because this was one of those conversations where I was like, oh shoot, I wish that I could make this public right now because it's so fire. So we talked about the artistic interventions of Cracky Rodriguez and the fire theory collective of Salvadoran artists who Jasmine studies And Jasmine broke down the zones of silence that have been created from the trauma of the Salvadoran Civil War and explains how fire theory uses collective corporeality to disrupt these zones of absence and gaps in knowledge and talks through the framework of, quote, Salvadoran ignorance as a state-sanctioned policy of disinvestment. Like I said, this was a completely fire episode, and I wish I could have brought it to you all sooner. If you want to support Radio Cachimbona, then you can become a patron at patreon.com slash radio cachimbona for 5 or $10 a month, and you can also follow at Radio Cachimbona on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And wanted to quickly apologize for the last episode where I think I did a double, where I did do a double recording of the intro. Apologies. Doing this all my own gets me in a tizzy sometimes so thank you for your patience and i really hope that you'll enjoy this unlocked lit review yay we're recording all right so hi everyone I'm super excited today to have Jasmine Magana is that how you pronounce your last name Maganya Maganya oh, okay dang Skype doesn't have the in on, in your name yeah I know I tried I yeah, it's a violation
1: I edit <laughs> a lot I'm right now in the process of trying to add it to my Duke profile mm-hmm. so that it actually comes mm-hmm. out because yeah without it Magana happens a lot.
0: I'm Sorry for to have contributed to that. It's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But especially since I'm I'm very excited to have you on. You are a Salvadoran scholar. You go to Duke, and you you think about the connections between Colombia and El Salvador, their art scenes, and you know how the country's relationship with war affects the art scene and the art market. Just, it's all super interesting so I just wanted to give you the opportunity to let folks know kind of what what your focus has been while at Duke.
1: Sure so I'm, I'm just now in the process of trying to define what my dissertation project is going to be right now it's. Ooh, fun. I of, yeah I have a lot of ideas it's just not very clear and because of the nature of the PhD where you are required to take coursework. It's just a lot of time where I've spent thinking about papers for other classes that don't necessarily feed into my own research. And that's just the nature of the the U.S. academy right now. The, the class, classes that are being taught in the departments aren't always going to be looking at Latin America or anything outside of the the U.S. European scope even though we've come a long way
0: <laughs> what department are you in?
1: In art history. Okay wow yeah oh yeah I
0: can see that so people is it like very classist and racist how they evaluate the art that's studied is the way that Duke approaches studying art is that very classist and racist?
1: In in some ways, yes. I think art, the the kind of art that gets placed into canons, is mm. inherently classist and racist. And mm. there have been a lot of strides in in the in the field, but what I'm seeing here is that's not sufficient. And I came from a museum background. I was working in museums for a bit. And as behind as we think museums are, I think the academy, the the university, is just much further behind. So oh, I think believe that one hundred percent. Museum, yeah. If you think of museums <laughs> the purpose being of
0: the museum is public facing, right? Where sure. Academia doesn't even have that goal. It's really an interacademic conversation.
1: Exactly. And I guess I had been out of that enough because I took I took time off between my undergrad and my master's and then my master's to the PhD. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And because I'm always thinking about these connections to what's happening in the museum world, Mm -hmm. Um, just because that's the nature of of being in that world, you have to be thinking about, okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. Even though I was excited about going back to, to school to be able to spend a long time working on one project and seeing what comes out of it. Mm-hmm. The yeah. other part, the other realization was that, wow, we are about 20 years behind here.
0: Mm, wow. From what you saw when you were at museums.
1: Yeah. I mean, like museums, maybe the lag time is 5, 10 years. At some of the bigger institutions, it might be 10 years. Mm-hmm. in terms of what what they're looking at what kind of conversations they're they're starting to have now i think there are conversations that were happening in in community spaces and in other in like grassroots organizations conversations that they were having 10 15 years ago but then mm-hmm. the academy is is just now catching up to where we were in those sorts of conversations right 20 Years ago, maybe more. (laughs) Well, hopefully they'll catch up someday. (laughs) Yeah, I
0: mean, I hope so. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, so before kind of diving further into your scholarship, I did want to do this check in that I do usually and that I'm kind of restarting. It's asking what your last week was like and what you have done for self-care oh okay and if, and if you're like oh the self-care is lacking you can also say what you plan to do
1: okay on <laughs> <It's laughs> this <good>. podcast <laughs> yeah uh, the past week has been tough mm-hmm. I've been having a lot of conversations with friends recently about what it means to to be away from as people that come from latinx backgrounds Mm -hmm. we were like what is that responsibility to our families that are back home right you mean financially
0: or emotionally or through the work okay
1: emotionally for sure in my in my case it might be for for other people it might be different but in my case it's definitely emotional because they're being away you you think okay well I have distance, I, I'm i mm-hmm. not there all the time, so I can, I have an out there, but the truth of the matter, when things push comes to shove, you've got to be there for your family, and, mm-hmm. you know, you hear, especially in these white spaces, oh, just, it's not your problem, You just for <laughs> it, you know, focus on you, do you, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. and I'm like, yeah, but that's not how our culturally... Right. And, I don't know, ethically
0: even? Yeah, as humans, you know, we're all interdependent, codependent on each other, regardless of whatever American individualism will have you think.
1: Exactly. And it's like, it's not raised like that at the end of the day. Like, I have (laughs) to pick up those phone calls. I have to find solutions and... I am trying to be better about my boundaries, but with family, it's sort of these are the sorts of conversations I'm having with my friends. It's like with family, you could set up those boundaries, but when they come calling, there's really I don't know, I feel that responsibility to to help them. So the past week has been tough in in that regard, trying to, to manage those expectations of myself and also from them, for my family. Mm-hmm. So in terms of self-care, in the past week I've tried to to spend a lot of time with people that I like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> critical, for, critical. Yes. I mean the amount of time that I spent, especially in my first year of of the program of just trying to stay okay if I just stay Within myself, it'll be fine. I'll be able to handle mm-hmm. it. But this year, with the uh, in the second year, I'm starting to realize no, you, you kind of need people, and it's just a matter of trying to find those people yeah. that will help. So, luckily, I've identified some people, <laughs> and I've been trying to spend as much time with them as possible, and just being open and and. Yeah, like, I went to see a drag comedy ballet show. Oh, nice. On Saturday, that was Mm -hmm. amazing. Oh, cool. Um, Got dinner and drinks with friends, Mm -hmm. and today I went to therapy, so... Yes, yes, you're doing it. Wow. I'm trying.
0: (laughs) That's great. Yeah, and just in response to your white colleagues who are like, just focus on yourself, continue forging forward in academia, it's just like... Uh, that's so unappealing because ac- actually academia is so oppressive and shitty. You ha- I, you mentioned drawing boundaries with your family, but I think we were also talking about drawing boundaries in your workplace, right? Because
1: well, that's not something I struggle with. That's like mm. actually what I'm trying to v- revisit now. Mm. It wasn't. I started off the program, and I was like, okay, I moved. I should say I moved to to Durham from from Buffalo. So, I've been around problematic white people for <laughs> a bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and because of those experiences, I came into this, and I guard was up
0: mm-hmm, when it mm-hmm.
1: came to to white people, specifically white women, especially. I was just like, nope. I do not want to have these sorts of conversations. I will not humor these sorts of interactions. Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, mm-hmm. at, at some point,
1: those, those boundaries have come in handy. They've saved. Yeah. Me yeah. 1000%. Mm-hmm. And then it did force me to, to reach out to people that I did identify as like, okay, this person is de confianza. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it took a, it took a lot of work. So I'm slowly dismantling the boundaries I did have, but reevaluating them, I guess, should be a better way of putting that.
0: Got it. Cool. Thanks for sharing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. So to, <laughs> I wanted to be truthful with the listeners because last week I talked about how I was going to book a couples massage for my partner because I told him that I was going to book it as part of his Christmas gift.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I still didn't do it. And it's so shameful. <laughs> it's literally the end of February. That's so bad. But you know what? Like, seriously, tomorrow, tomorrow, I'm going to put it in my Google Calendar and I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then I've just continued to be grateful for my new supervisor in Tucson because she's kind of mentoring me just in, in how to effectively communicate. And I appreciate it.
1: Oh, great. Oh yeah. my God, that's amazing! I think another thing I've learned from this experience is the important of the importance of mentorship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's something I've I lacked in in my last job, and it's something that I'm still struggling to identify here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just wish it were it were not seen as a sign of weakness to ask for help, right? So, I'm glad right. that your supervisor is is taking note of that and act, helping you helping you further your career and
0: yeah, and my skill set.
1: And your skills, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's the thing about the legal profession. Law school is this kind of theoretical exercise and it's pretty divorced from what legal practice is actually like and it's, I think that's especially true at schools like Stanford where I went and so really the only the only and best way that you can learn is by like working under an attorney more experienced than you and having them look over your work as you do it for the first time and so it's it's so so critical for young lawyers to get mentorship and it's kind of shocking how many nonprofits. I can't speak to the private sector because I haven't worked in it but it's shocking how nonprofits don't prioritize mentoring their young lawyers. They just treat them as disposable and these individuals that can just be churned out you know, for a year and burned out. And it's awful.
1: What's the the style of mentorship? Is it tough love or is it?
0: Oof, talked about tough love on the last episode.
1: <laughs> well, Ibra, I, I
0: mean, I talked about how that idea is, so frequently applied to people of color mm-hmm. I talked about charter schools and the military like discipline that people impose on kids things like you need to raise your hand to go to the bath, just to go to the bathroom and just kind of total submission to authority yeah. and, and no room for creative thinking for imagining and I, I've had mentors of color who have that was kind of their philosophy was Tough love. I did it and I got shingles because I was so stressed. So you should do oh, it too. <laughs> Literally.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's what I've experienced. Oh well I went through it. Why should you why should your experience be any different? Trust. But I exactly. Um, okay, I was raised on tough love and it's taken mm. me years to unlearn that right. dependency. Yes, and yes. Uh, I'm I'm done with it. It doesn't right. just be nice. <laughs> That's literally what
0: I said. I was like, if you if you just sat and thought about it, like, as a person of color, haven't you gone through so much awful shit? Yeah, it's specifically it's be nice. because of racism. So why wouldn't you just realize? Hmm, I think what my mentee is someone to be really needs is someone to be really nice to her.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hello, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. to me it's so obvious. Maybe I should guide her instead of telling her, well, why didn't you think of that?
0: Right. <laughs> it's like,
1: right. What? Especially
0: for Western students.
1: Exactly. 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 It's, just, it's astounding. The, the lack of, I don't know, is it a, a self-awareness or is it, oh, I don't know, because I don't want to believe that it's just this maliciousness.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, like, it's indifference. I think it's very cold indifference. Hmm. And I think indifference can be very cruel. Yeah. Well, on that cheerful note, (laughs) let's move on to your scholarship. To just dive right into some of the stuff that you sent me, could you explain... Why Salvador's right wing and particularly the National Guard came to assume that anyone who was a farmer or indigenous was a communist yeah. or insurgent after the 1932 ethnocide of Nahua people?
1: Sure. I mean I can I'm I'm still in the process of learning this. It's one thing that I found uh, starting in undergrad of mm-hmm. because I but Girl, you, know,
0: you have so much more knowledge than anybody listening to this right now, <laughs> myself included.
1: Can you be like, oh, I just but, Eight years, but,
0: just, but I'm I still learning.
1: It, <laughs> I think it's something that I became very self-conscious of, actually, having been educated in the U.S. and gone to university in the, in the Pacific Northwest. That I. I had like, white people coming up to me and telling me about the history of El Salvador, mm-hmm. where my family's from. And I was just like, uh, I don't know any of this. Right, And it right, wasn't right. that point where I was asked, learning, but also asking questions. But it's still, it's a, yes. it's a difficult thing for my parents to talk about, for my family to talk about. Right, So I don't really push it on them. Oh, tell me what? El Salvador was like, what was this experience and something, which is why I'm so grateful towards artists that are addressing um, the political Mm -hmm. environment so directly, because Mm -hmm. through them, I'm also learning. But in turn, to answer your question of, I think it it happens you see that sort of in in many contexts where Mm -hmm. the worker is villainized by right-wing governments Mm -hmm. and the, but the
0: indigenous worker in particular.
1: The indigenous worker, those those with little means that are just hoping to to organize and gain some mm-hmm. dignity mm-hmm. back from in their relationship to the state. Mm-hmm. And that scene, uh, and th- what the worst label that right wing governments can put on that, or any government right. can put right. on that sort of ask, it's communist
0: right vote for bernie
1: go for bernie <laughs> exactly i just spent the weekend talking to people about bernie
0: <laughs> yeah i just mailed in my early ballot voted in the arizona primary love it okay it
1: first <laughs> day early voting in north carolina was amazing. <laughs> great great great
0: So I also, I wanted you to kind of get in. So this is something that I've thought a lot about, especially in the, this discourse of some people on social, some Latinx people on social media ask, what is my relationship to indigeneity as a Salvadoran person? And I wanted you to give us this historical context because I think this is really important, right? The, the 1932 ethnocide and then the subsequent targeting of indigenous people led to the virtual disappearance of the a traditional dress, food, and way of life. And so I just kind of wanted you to explain that a bit more for folks who don't know about that history.
1: Okay, let me see if I can... (laughs) Like anything to deal with Central and South America, race is just such a weird thing to talk about. And it's ties with indigeneity and mm-hmm. everything. Let me see. Let me see if I could gather myself mm-hmm. before I answer this question.
0: Oh yeah, for sure, for sure.
1: To go. So, so you want me to go through the this the history? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, aside from what it was, what it what it stands a testament to these it's not El Salvador is not the only country to be guilty of m- mass genocide of indigenous people
0: right but I, I think,
1: think I like think El Salvador for example is different than
0: Guatemala which has a very visible I mean, it just sure. a very visible presence there
1: yeah 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 and I think in terms of El Salvador what happened was the the just the people that came in power and the the way they managed to control the land. You control the land, you control people, mm-hmm. and is that's I think that's what ended up happening. But in terms of speaking more to it, can't really yeah at the moment. Yeah, I mean, the process of of learning that history enough that I'll be able to to speak to it.
0: Yeah. That makes- uh, Thank you for that, though. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I read the article you sent about Cracky Rodriguez. Do you want to kind of share who he is as an artist?
1: Sure. Victor Crack Rodriguez, he's a member of a, an art collective, an art production collective called The Fire Theory. And the fire theory, they, they're a a group of artists right now. They're sort of spread out. They have two people, including Victor, who are based in San Salvador. There -hmm. are two other people based in Bogota right now. And one member who is in New York. So, because of their transnational locations and they but they're all from El Salvador originally and they just happen to be spread out right now
0: So oh, got it
1: And they're together they they produce art happenings, performances, interventions one of the one of their performances well it's not really. I don't think I'd characterize it as a performance. One of their interventions, one of uh, one that became they became known for was this soccer game between or where they invited former guerrilleros and former military officers to come together and they mixed them up in in the team so they didn't play against each other.
0: Uh uh-huh
1: but they were they played it in teams alongside each other and there was this game and then there was documentation and the the conversations around their experience during the war but also their experience during the game mm. So this form of, of dialogue, this for inciting mm-hmm. dialogue, and I think that's what comes across in Rodriguez in the in the piece by Rodriguez from this Mexican magazine. It was published in this Mexican magazine called Terremoto. It's one of those publications that it's good to follow if with any interest in art from Latin America. Cool. And that's what he sort of pushes through in his in his essay, talking about how this dialogic practice this centering dialogues between publics really is the center of of their practice and his practice through them
0: that's so amazing i love that and and i love the i love that you phrase that as an intervention Mm Mm-hmm. So from the article that you sent me, he wrote, in this way, we inhabited a zone of silence and absences that transformed itself over the years, ending with the signing of the Peace Accords in Mexico City in 1992. Mm -hmm. What does Cracky Rodriguez mean by a zone of silences and absences?
1: Sure, I think that specifically alludes to that inability or that... Lack of desire to confront what the war meant and what its real mm-hmm. consequences were It self-imposed silence as much as it is. and that that silence has to do with protection, right? You're protecting right. yourself. um you're hoping to protect your next generation. your but it's this unwillingness to talk that traps you. Mm. And yep. I think that's what I was I, I was also referring to before when I was talking to about my own family's inability to, to talk about their experiences because they rather, no, eso lo dejé allá, you know? Mm-hmm. No, quiero yeah. de, no quiero hablar de eso, you know? Yeah. So what does that create? It creates these tensions, these zones right. of silence where you're you're supposed to continue to act without full acknowledgement of history. Right. Yeah, that really
0: resonates with me because my dad was in the guerrilla in the war and I asked him once I realized what that meant. Like did he ever kill anybody? And he didn't answer and never wanted to talk about it and just said, what do you think happens during war? And left it at that.
1: Yeah and without talking about it you can't really like that that history doesn't get recorded right and right. that's just nature of of tradition oral traditions written anything so what happens is that there's this gap in knowledge
0: mm-hmm. it feels really powerful to be two Salvadoran American women talking on this podcast and breaking these the zone of silence.
1: For sure. <laughs> I like to think so.
0: Can you explain what collective corporeality is?
1: The the very act of being a collective, I think. You you function as a collective body, and the way that that plays out with the fire theory specifically is that they, at any given moment, they have different projects going on. And there's always a different head head of project, let's say, that's called up. That. There's always the person running it. And then the other members are helping to realize that vision. Mm-hmm. But that head is never the same. It changes according to, to the project. And according to whose project it is, and the head is given authorship with support, and their their work is always credited to the author, to the head, with support by the by so and so, so and so, so and so, and they'll outline it. So I think, in that sense, that's the, the the body. You know, you have the head, and then the limbs. You could think of it like that.
0: Hmm. So he, so the, but he, the collective corporality refers to fire theory, but I feel like in the article he was also saying that the, are our, our people, are some of, so it's the fire theory, but also like uh, the people that are involved in interventions, right? Yes. Yeah.
1: I think I remember, I think I remember the part of it that you're referring to. That moment where he talks about the the reappropriation of corporeality mm-hmm. through through art, right? Mm-hmm. Let me think. In that context, in that reappropriating the body, it is about reinserting the body into into these conversations, which is where their performance comes in. And if you saw the the images that are attached to the article, he's very much about those moments of putting his his body into uncomfortable situations and performances as a way to use his body right. to translate what would be these zones of silence, I guess. Mm-hmm. what What's unsaid, what is not directly expressed, he, by reinserting, by putting his body into these situations, you are giving... I don't want to say giving voice because that's also not tied to, <laughs> to a body necessarily, but you are giving shape. Mm-hmm. I guess giving shape to abstract forms of language and things that reside in the realm of symbols and that sort of thing.
0: Right. Yeah. And and when I think about the phrase collective corporeality, I, I also think about Central American migration. And how these this mass movement of bodies also it is is an expression of the trauma left unaddressed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, okay, I'd
1: so like to hear more about that. What? I'd like to hear more about that. Oh, I mean, that's kind of the extent of the, that I've thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess
0: to make it kind of more, Specific and concrete, and how I experienced it in my life. There's been time with the caravanas, for example, Trump, but not even just Trump. I mean, I think conservatives in general try and pit the lawyers who are providing asylum workshops or who are providing legal relief to or helping people get legal relief it, as part of the caravana are these radical political thinkers who are imposing their own radical beliefs onto the people who are migrating and there's this really awful dehumanizing idea that they can't have their own politic. Mm. And I think just because a person can't articulate their migration in Marxist terms doesn't mean that them that the mass movement of people fleeing this trauma left unaddressed Right, this MS-13 gang violence that we know emanated from LA prisons and deportees yeah. from the U.S. Right, that's all. That's all trauma left unaddressed,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: you're right. and the zone of silence is still present in in the Salvador now with people not able. They're not able because in certain areas the the gangs are like quasi government. So Mm -hmm. you people can't report to the police because reporting to the police is like reporting to to the gangs. And and so, again, it's like it is this imposed silence and it's it's self-regulated, perhaps, but it's really because it's life or death circumstances. And so even if there isn't, you know, traditional union organizing a group of people, a group of workers huddled in a corner talking political strategy. Of how to unionize the workplace, for example, uh, I still think that the, migra- the mass migration of Central Americans fleeing these war torn countries that are experiencing violence that's a direct result of US imperialism are also engaging in a politic and a collective corporeality that's really important to recognize.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> but also, this, I. This idea that I think what you're saying is right. This idea that someone has to explain why they fear for their life and it has to be in terms that could be intellectualized or whatever is Mm. just ridiculous. It's like if someone tells you, I have to leave my home, I can't be here anymore, then you believe them. Right. Right. Right.
0: Right. It's I mean it's and it's especially heartbreaking when you, the when you see people who are migrating in, in what they describe primarily in economic terms,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: those people are automatically denied asylum because poverty is not a protected category under asylum law. And why? That is completely arbitrary. Poverty is violence. Poverty is state sanctioned violence. Yeah. So why is that not an asylum category? I don't know. <laughs> Let's make <laughs> me an immigration judge, guys. I got yes. it. <laughs> no, that was a joke. I would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing that I wanted you to unpack that I didn't quite understand or maybe I wasn't quite on board with was Cracky Rodriguez using the term Salvadorian ignorance Mm -hmm. to refer to the lack of investment in public education and media complicity. And I wanted to ask you how you felt about that term.
1: Sure. I guess the way I read it is... Let me think about this. I think I read it as directed or is in reference to a government entity, right? Like
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I see that. Like,
1: as an official state policy. Right. Not as, as a critique of El Pueblo.
0: Okay. Oh my gosh. I'm really glad that you clarified that because that's... I read it at first as a critique of el Pueblo and I was like, uh, this feels weird, but you're totally right that he is talking about state sanctioned policies because he's talking about the lack of investment in public education and a media news, um, you know, a media world that also is complicit. So I think that that makes total sense. Yeah. Okay, so another thing that that Cracky Rodriguez talked about in the article was the life of Prudencia Ayala. Do you wanna share quickly who she was?
1: Sure. I mean, I found out about her through this through through the essay that I shared with you. Yeah. But in the in the article he he writes of of she was the first woman to, to run for state government and for president. For president, yeah, and it, the way he frames it too, and I'll need to I need to look into this a bit more. Is that no one really batted an eye at it? Right. They just thought, yeah, why wouldn't a woman run for the presidency? <laughs> and I was like, that's interesting. I'll need to look into that a little bit more because I have a feeling that there were some old white men <laughs> that had a problem yeah. with it. But I love it that he. He He frames her, her this act of being a candidate as disrupting as even if it was accepted at its time, even if no one batted an eye, it's still, in retrospect, it could be read as this disruption of life and mm-hmm. that, that he's reflecting on now through his performance work right is what this shaking of society like shaking awake Mm -hmm. and that her candidacy could be read as that
0: yeah I quoted that because I found it so powerful he said that her candidacy was an act that shares with action art and political art the capacity to break into life and the collective
1: Mm -hmm.
0: which I think is what their fire theory is trying to do
1: yeah, and then he defines action art as, and I might have the the quote wrong, but precise direct occurrence that makes real this possibility for change. Mm-hmm. And I'd love, and I love that specifically of their work that there is there's definitely a critique of the situation as it is, but then. The very their work highlights this hope that there can be change. Mm-hmm. That if we just shake disrupt everyday life just a little bit, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then it's it highlights that that space that exists that in which people can make change. That
0: is so powerful.
1: Yeah, I, 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 this is what I love about what I do. I get to yeah. look at art and think about art all day. And <laughs> sometimes it makes it worth it.
0: Yeah. Can you explain what Cracky Rodriguez means by adult centrism?
1: What was the context of that? I guess I could pull it up too. Let me see.
0: <laughs> he says, in this march... Nothingness challenged the adult centrism that not only damages the generational succession, but also resorts to its advocacy of war through the use of pyrotechnics to perpetuate the sounds of violence. Mm.
1: So
0: I when to he's talking about the it. Labor Day March on May 1st, where people wore all black and walked backwards. Right. And it was called Nothingness.
1: Right. Okay, I found it. Hmm. I guess I didn't think about that too much. It's just one of those phrases that I I read, but it didn't register. Yeah. But we can unpack it. Let's talk uh, like adult <laughs> centrism. What would be a, an adult-centric perspective? I... I think Anyone I would,
0: one that doesn't take youth seriously.
1: It doesn't take youth seriously for sure. And then there's there's also that idea that oh, you won't know until you're older until you have kids. Yes. Is definitely one I've heard a lot from my mom. Yeah, oh, they kids, actually have very end. End. Mm-hmm.
0: very not okay.
1: Yeah, and this idea that. Adults. I would also think about it as this idea that adults are the keepers of knowledge, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that are the make the creators and the keepers of knowledge. And somehow, children and young people can't be trusted with those sort of processes that's, I think that's how I would define adult centrism. I don't know. Yeah,
0: no, and I think that that makes sense in the context of a workers' march, because, um, I mean, I know child labor exists, but it's theoretically, we're only talking about, if we're talking about labor, we're talking about adults who have reached working age or labor age. And so I think that would make sense in in this if like this march is supposed to represent progress and f- better conditions then it's it's short-sighted if it's only considering people who of laboring age
1: yeah because it's not thinking about who's next the next the generation that follows mm-hmm. it's sort of the same thing we've hit here in this country when talking about healthcare and the student loan debt crisis things that well it won't affect the old people making the laws right now but they're also not thinking right. about everyone that comes after
0: mhm right so, so going back you
1: point to you because that's oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about <laughs> that and that's- yeah
0: yeah, I learned about adult centrism from my friend, Alex. She's a PhD and she researches the effect of parental incarceration on girls of color. Mm. And she said that she wanted, to, when whenever she's interacting with the people, with the girls that she's interviewing, she always wants to make sure that she's not imposing her adult centrism on them. So that's where I learned the term. And yeah, it caught me in the article.
1: Oh, cool. Great. Yeah. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, so I wanted to, going back to the topic about ignorance, so he also talks about ignorance as a resource. Can you explain that, right? Because we had just discussed Salvador and ignorance referring to the this, this state and its kind of intentional lack of investment in education, but how is that then a resource?
1: hmm I think it's a resource because if there's a lack then it can be addressed, right? Right. So you could work with a blank slate, so to speak. Hmm. You could work upon it, at least. <laughs> right. So I think in, in that sense, it would be a resource. hmm And then how can
0: ignorance intersect with knowledge? That was another phrase that he brought
1: up. I think the intersection happens with the addressing mm-hmm. of ignorance, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the acknowledgement right. that there is a, a lack in that you are intersecting with knowledge. Right. It's not a direct intervention yet, but an acknowledgement is knowledge, right?
0: mm-hmm right mm-hmm. it's that initial recognition
1: mm-hmm.
0: so oh uh, another thing that cracky said that stuck out to me was we share an addiction to consumption that is closely related to loneliness how do you think that that plays out in our everyday lives
1: oh my god where doesn't it play out in the- <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> capitalism uh-huh
1: capitalism it's just this idea that if I buy that oil diffuser, then <laughs> it will it will give me the the calm that I need if I put this sort of oil in it. <laughs> or I don't know. Loneliness is a sort of inquietude, right? Yeah.
0: I just imagine more of more of an ache than like an, an mm
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mhm. Yeah, ache. But I hear you what you're saying about an inquietud because I think mm-hmm. it's a natural human instinct to want to resolve feelings of loneliness, right? Exactly. Like, it doesn't, loneliness doesn't feel like a state that's natural for us to be in, to be exactly. in?
1: Exactly, and then it's it's something that has to be addressed quickly. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not. It's not something that any of us really feel comfortable sitting with.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's where the addiction of consumption comes in, because it, uh, as a people use material things as a way to try and mask that loneliness.
1: Yeah. Or and gratification. Address, it addresses that loneliness very quickly i mean now with amazon oh god almost instantaneously right right it's like you don't need whatever you're buying day of (laughs) if you do then go to a store
0: yeah those exist
1: (laughs) (laughs) but also you probably don't need it Mm -hmm. just flat out Mm -hmm. right right right
0: Can you explain why El Salvador and Colombia's histories are useful to compare? We kind of got into that a bit in the previous call, and I thought it was really interesting. So I just wanted to ask more about that.
1: Sure. I mean, I'm still trying to to think about this question of, because it's not a connection. It's a connection I, I saw for myself. But seeing the fire theory work in these two contexts and make and start talking about the connection between the two contexts in terms of right now they're focused on this idea of migration Mm -hmm. um, within Latin America and also going outside of that. Um, So, because because they have made that connection. I sort of took that as a as a go sign <laughs> to to think about this more closely, and I hope that that's once I'm done with coursework, it's something that I'll, I'll get into. But what I find interesting about Colombia and El Salvador right now is thinking about them as neoliberal states, Mm -hmm. especially two countries that have been willing to appease the United States in a lot of ways, right? even though they've been internally, both countries have dealt with just generations, these decades of violence that just, everything adds on top of each other, Mm -hmm. yet none of that really gets addressed. Yet, there's still, like, even though all these things are happening internally, there's still this willingness to look outward to the United States. You see that in Colombia that has routinely had right-wing governments ready to bend at the U.S.'s beckoning, but also right now with Nayib Bukele in El Salvador, who, mm-hmm. I mean, he took responsibility whatever the fuck that means for migration out of El Salvador saying oh yes it's our it's our fault but then Mm -hmm. it's just a way to it was just a way to appease Trump in his blaming of shithole countries right
0: yeah that's tragic
1: So I'm just like, what, where is this stance against the United States? I mean, we know what happens when governments decide to stand against the United States. But Mm -hmm. politically, I think the context of Colombia and El Salvador really are marrying each other. And then socially, there's those aspects where you have these decades-long traumas that just add up and affect generations in very different ways. And at the same time, you have these generations of artists that are looking to address the social, social situation and talk about, okay, what is this process of healing, of recuperation look like? Mm-hmm. If it doesn't come from a state level, mm-hmm. how do we heal as a community? And I think that's a, a lot what Rodriguez talks about in his essay is what we heal as a community, of course, acting as a, a collective of reinforcing the collective body, but also in dealing with this ignorance. Right. Yeah. So I'm I mean, I'm hoping to to get more into this relationship. Right now it's a very superficial Way of looking at the connection between these two places, but also I, I'm hoping to to extend that discussion into reach in, into more regional sort of debates. We'll see how that plays out. Looking at South America, Central America, going into South America via Colombia. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Right now, I think I think those are two. That's an interesting pairing. Colombia and El Salvador but then I still have to do some some work some as in a lot of work yeah to, <laughs> to sort of identify different connections
0: yeah that makes uh, sense you mentioned one of the connections you mentioned is that you know cl- collaboration between El Salvador and Colombian artists based in both places is important because when there isn't an art market and you also mentioned that Colombia's art market is state art which kind of has an interesting element mm-hmm. to to the the art market True. just wanted to see if you wanted to comment on that
1: well Colombia does have a number of, of contemporary art galleries that are very active and some even participate in art fairs globally mm-hmm. um, and that was very interesting to me to to see when I was down there this past summer because there were definitely a couple of names of galleries that I had heard of before just through my work with in museums and being aware of art fairs and the U.S. art publications. There are some names that come up when talking about contemporary galleries, contemporary art galleries in, in Colombia. But I was amazed at how many there actually were that were actually addressing a more internal market and trying to grow Mm. a market for Colombian but also international artists showing in Colombia Mm. so there that market is a little bit more developed right right now and that's why I I think of it as a as a precedent like if we look at where oh and the the state-run project that you mentioned a, there's a lot of museums and institutional commissions that run the other side of the art world. So there are these commercial galleries, but there there are also the museums which are state run. And I'm trying mm-hmm. to think, I think all in Bogota, I'm trying to think of, yeah, they're all government initiatives the museums you don't have private museums the way you do in the united states
0: wow and it's, it's really cool that they're investing and in giving a platform to inter to their own artists and but also to other international artists as well
1: mm-hmm. but that was definitely amazing to see because there were some like there's just this area in bogota that's where it's just a concentration of art of art galleries and it's amazing to know like the amount of names that I was not familiar with that just don't show outside of Colombia or don't address the art world outside of Latin America so from this context over here Looking out, you'd say, "Oh, well, there's not really an art market. There's not an art scene, whatever that means."
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: then being down there is like, no, it's just a. V- it's a very internal thing because it's sort of taking care of your immediate surroundings before you start looking out. Like why need? Why do you need to address the United States? Would right. be there? Would be their viewpoint, or why would as as a a commercial gallery there like why would they need to pay the exorbitant amount of money that is required to participate in art fairs in europe and in the u.s when they could spend that money furthering the career of an artist in colombia
0: makes a thousand percent sense to me
1: yeah so then El Salvador, San Salvador, has had a couple of of commercial galleries that have existed before, mm-hmm. but right now there's only one, and they started. They opened in uh June, or July was it? It was one of the in the summer. It's called La Unica Gallery, mm-hmm. and it was started with by an artist uh, down there, and and another another curator who's originally from the U.S., I think. I'm blanking on her name. But they're hoping that they will be the first of many. And that's sort of what you see right now in, in El Salvador, the beginnings of art centers, art spaces. But they are artists run. They are mm-hmm. The responsibility mm-hmm. of the artist to keep going. There's a lot of self-curating too, because there are no curators. As a profession, you don't see that in El Salvador. That it's not a supported profession. Mm-hmm. So the artists have taken that gap as a, a way of, of shaping the context around their own art. But also, you know, they're they're picking up that slack.
0: Right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. This was such an illuminating interview and I hope to have you back on the podcast again soon.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't, I love to be able to update you on an actual path of of my research as it develops. It's just right now very early stages but I look forward to to seeing what comes out of this
0: yeah so thank you so much for being on the show and I'm going to okay I'm
1: going to stop recording so
0: bye everyone